I'm Tony. And this is Matt. And this is What Did We Miss, a podcast where we get around to resolving our pop culture blind spots one episode at a time. Tony, what did we miss? Uh, today, we are discussing that we missed Taxi. 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 The TV show. The TV the show. The TV show, yeah. Not the Jimmy Fallon movie. With Queen, Queen Latifah. Clean, Clean, Clean Latifah. Clean Latifah. That could be a new rap pseudonym. Clean Latifah? Clean Latifah. That's the version they sold at Walmart, because Walmart wouldn't have the albums with the swears on it. Oh, that's clever. Oh, thank you very much. You're welcome. Uh, yeah, no, we are talking about the the the, the classic sitcom Taxi. Mm-hmm. From 1978 to 1983. Yes. Uh, starring Danny DeVito. Mary Lou Henner. Judd Hirsch. Tony Danza. That other guy. That other guy. Which one? Uh, Bobby? The guy that plays Bobby. Jeff Conway. Jeff Conway. A.K.A. Kanicki from Greece. He was Kanicki from Greece? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Um, and uh, Christopher Lloyd. Christopher Lloyd. Yeah. And Andy Kaufman. And Andy Kaufman. And Carol Kane. And Carol Kane. Wow. We're missing somebody, aren't we? Um, that dude that left after the first season. Oh, yeah. Joe and, What's His Face. Yeah. And then the extra that was in it, uh, like a lot of episodes. J. Allen Thomas, who played Jeff Bennett. Oh, he was the guy who was always in the cage with yeah, Louie. Yeah, he's in the cage with Louie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think I, I did read that there were episodes where they got into his character a bit. Yeah, a little. And he actually factors into the final episode. Oh, okay. It's technically not the final, final episode because the last two episodes are like a retrospective. I think I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. We are really getting we're ahead really of ourselves. We're really getting ahead. Yeah. So why taxi? Um, because I've always wanted to be a taxi driver. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Why, why taxi? I think you you chose it. I did. It was your idea. Well, we were kicking around ideas for what to do for our first TV show. Yeah. And I think, I think we had... We talked about MASH. We talked about MASH. Uh, and I kind of felt bad about doing that one because I have seen a lot of MASH. Mm-hmm. But, and this is where my mind went, I distinctly remember my parents were fans of MASH and Cheers. And I don't know if this is just whatever network affiliate was based out of Boston or if if I'm just sort of jumbling up memories, but I remember either MASH or Cheers ending and Taxi beginning. So I have, I sort of associate the three very closely. And as it turns out, uh, there's a lot of shared creative DNA between the three of them. So I sort of have a, a mental sort of snapshot of, of the closing credits of MASH and the theme song playing and then fading and then, the, the the really sad jazz intro to Taxi coming on. And, yeah. And that's really all I remember of it. It was the beginning with the, the cab driving over the bridge. Um, Judd, I, I knew that Judd Hirsch was in it. I actually didn't realize that Christopher Lloyd or Tony Danza mm-hmm. were in it uh, until more recently than I care so, to admit. So that's pretty interesting because my only recollection of it, aside from the theme song like you... Is Christopher Lloyd. Oh, really? Because I vaguely remember an episode where he comes in contact with some aliens. <laughs> did, I didn't watch that one. I did not either. But I'm pretty sure it's like a delusional thing. Uh, oh, isn't there a, there's a Fantasy Island episode or something? There could be, yeah. Um, but I just, I vaguely remember those elements to it. Mm-hmm. I don't, I probably watched it in reruns when I was really young, but I would have been really, really young. Right. Uh, which I'm sure 
the majority of it was just right over my head, but Christopher Lloyd was wacky. So I was probably like, he's wacky. And I know him from back to the future. Sure. And I, th- I think another big thing too, is Jim Carrey's portrayal of Andy Kaufman and man in the moon. There's a lot of taxi stuff in that. I mean, even the, the most of the cast played themselves in the scene, um, a particularly infamous, you know, bit of Andy performance art on mm-hmm. the set. Uh, and that was really the only other sort of yeah sort of connection I had to it before this. Mm. And for this episode, you and I both signed up to be Uber drivers, and we did Uber for a few weeks mm-hmm. and picked up a lot of people, and we, we competed to see who could make more money in tips. Right, we did, and then we and we frequently turned to Judd Hirsch for life advice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, he he sort of condemned himself to a life as an Uber driver. Yeah. Uh, and we were berated by Danny DeVito. Yeah, which was surprising. Yeah, I, I didn't think uh, I didn't. I you know, it's Uber. You use your own car. I didn't think he'd be in my living room waiting to chew me out when I got home. Yeah, it was it was really scary. That's a little bit of overlap from our conversation about Queen. I think that could be a Wurlitzer. Oh, there you go. It could be a, a Rhodes, though. Mm-hmm. Electric. It's definitely an electric piano, though. And it's definitely just a. It is a sad song, and uh, kind of kind of a low level sadness <laughs> permeates <laughs> this whole show, um, which I, I I wasn't really prepared for, but really admired. Um, so with a TV show, unlike a movie or even, you know, we. We had to limit how many albums we listened to with Queen. A movie's an easier, uh, an easier pill to swallow. So with with TV, we had to we had to be very deliberate. So we sort of used uh, an AV Club article as our our roadmap here for Taxi by um, Les Chappelle. Yes, ten Taxi episodes that find heart and humor in a dead end job. Uh, this used to be a column they did called. TV Club Ten, which I, I really miss. They would pick a show and say these are these are ten episodes that serve as uh, the perfect example of what made this show something we really liked. So we we, we kind of use that as as a as a guideline. Went off book a little bit. Um, so before we really start talking about the episodes, maybe we should talk about uh, you know the genesis of the show and the, some of the creative people behind the show and mm-hmm. uh, and then kind of take it from there. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean the 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 creatives behind the show are really, if not responsible, certainly were associated with and involved with some of uh, quote-unquote important 
sitcoms of, mm-hmm. of the, the 70s. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, you know, so James L. Brooks was just coming off the Mary Tyler Moore show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was working for ABC. And from what I gather, he's kind of like handed kind of like sort of a blank check saying like, we're going to let you do your thing. You, whatever you want. So Taxi was sort of greenlit just by Brooks being Brooks and just by his name attached with it. And so he had his production company with a bunch of other ringers uh, and creators who've been in, in the, um, the sitcom business for a while. And uh, together they came up with this idea. Uh, but ABC, they really just went in and were like, yeah, we're going to do a show called Taxi. It's about a taxi company. And they're like, yeah, cool. Do mm-hmm. that. Um, but it was James L. Brooks, Stan Daniels, David Davis, and Ed Weinberger. Those were all the, the creators of, of the show initially. And I guess um, they were inspired by an article. Yeah, that was a, it was a New York Magazine article by Mark Jacobson called Night Shifting for the Hip Fleet, which was about the Dover Cab Company, which was in the village in New York. Uh, so the article was published in 75, and reading it, you really – it's all there. The template, it's the, – it, the Dover Garage is just this – sort of melting pot of of disparate characters and dreamers and you know struggling actors but then academics and priests and people with PhDs everything everybody who worked there was anything but a cab driver of course there you know there was that character but reading this story you get little uh, seeds of of who you see in the television show and it's really interesting. And there are there's two quotes in particular that I wanted to pull from it. One of them being, "They're all good cab stories if you live to tell about them." Uh, you know, the the reporter has kind of a fly on the wall perspective, and you know, cabbies just all kind of bullshitting each other and and, and telling all these horror stories, and a lot of that comes through in Taxi. But there's one section he talks about that is really important because it I think it's directly responsible for uh what ends up being Alex Rieger who is Judd Hirsch's character and really the the heart of the TV show. Uh so he's he the writer's talking a lot about the fears that these cabbies have about the job. Um and here's a quote. The big fear and big fear is both capitals. The big fear is that times will get so hard that you'll have to drive five or six nights a week instead of three. The big fear is that your play, the one that's only one draft away from a possible showcase, will stay in your drawer. The big fear is thinking about all the poor, stiff civil servants who have been sorting letters at the post office every day since the last depression and all the great plays they could have produced. The big fear is that after 20 years of schooling, they'll put you on the day shift. The big fear is you're becoming a cab driver. And when we meet Alex, Judd Hirsch's character, he introduces himself by pointing out, you know, so-and-so is an actor and so-and-so is this other thing. Me, I'm a cab driver. I'm only going to be working here part-time. Oh. Yeah, I have this other job where I work Yeah, yeah, I know. We're all part-time here. I'm part-time. I only work 60 hours a week. (laughs) (laughs) No, really. I I really work as a receptionist at an art gallery. Oh, yeah? No, I'm I'm not really a taxi driver. No, no, I understand. You see that guy over there? Now, he's an actor. The guy on the phone, he's a prize fighter. This lady over here, she's a beautician. Man behind her, he's a writer. Me, I'm a cab driver. I'm the only cab driver in this place. Yeah, so that's Judd Hirsch, uh, again, as Alex Rieger, 
the only cab driver in a show about cab drivers, uh, meeting Elaine Nardo for mm-hmm. the first time, played by yeah. Mary Lou Henner. And Brooks said, James Brooks said that while they were doing research for the show, they actually went to that cab company. And they saw two things while they were there uh, that, that he said was the basis for the show. Like if we didn't have these things, they wouldn't work. Uh, one of them was he saw a cabbie paying or bribing the dispatcher. Mm-hmm. They they experienced this in person. Um, and they knew instantly like, oh, this is an angle for us. And the other one was um, was a guy that was there who was a lifer. And he was the, the only one there that said, uh, just like this quote, um, that he was the only one that was a taxi driver. And Brooks said, I don't think the series could have happened with either of those events happening. I'm not exaggerating. Like, they experienced those things, and they put two and two together, and then they figured out the show. Yeah, I think there is this this wonderful sort of crossover happening in the show. On the one hand, it's full of these characters that you sort of attribute with this era of sitcoms. There's, there's just something heightened, but uh, there's a truth to them in a, in a way that, you know, more so with the sitcoms that I grew up with in the 90s. There's an artificiality there, uh, and there's also this 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 sort of grit to it that feels very of the era, film wise. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 easy to sort of imagine this as being maybe a a, a different garage within the same world that Taxi Driver <laughs> exists in. You know, it's yeah. just a a slight a slightly quirkier, less depraved version of. Uh-huh. Of the the cabbies and and the 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 cabbie life that we see in that movie, I think one of the uh, brilliant things about this show is that um, most sitcoms at the time devise some sort of structure that allows them to kind of repeat the same thing every week. Whether it's Gilligan's Island, they're trapped on this island, or like Three's Company, Bosom Buddies, uh, roughly around the same time frame. What Taxi did was it made that part of um, part of the point of the show was that things were repetitive. It was part of the existential crisis of the show or, or of the characters. So it kind of took that thing that most sitcoms do in order to repeat themselves and made the repeating thing part of its its beauty. No, I, I think you're right, and I, I think there is. The episodes where they focus on the fact that their cab drivers aren't as prevalent from what we watched as I was maybe expecting. And the couple that come to mind in particular play off of the characters and not necessarily the situation. Um, I'm thinking of an episode where Alex and Louie, the dispatcher played by Danny DeVito, have a competition to see who can get the most fares in a night. Yeah. Um, and that's called the great race and uh, another one being uh memories of cab 804 when you know uh, every, everyone's one. favorite cab mm-hmm. um breaks down and or it was an accident or something and and they're they almost have like a, a memorial for it where they're 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 sharing their favorite stories of of a night where they were they were out in this lucky cab yeah. um, but again what's what comes through there is not so much the job so much as how each character individually reacts so differently to it. And that also uses that as kind of like a setup for short stories. Right. Uh, And it's sort of uh, most sitcoms, 
I, I think people would say are closer to plays than they are to, um, you know, movies or something like that. Because there's typically a fixed set, uh, one main set. For this one, it's a Sunshine Cab Company. And then occasionally you'll see them pop up into different apartments. But for the most part, that's their set. Um, and it, so it uses that to do like these kind of, um, as the, the creators of the show would say, morality plays. Sure, yeah. Um, in There's a, an oral history that Hollywood Reporter did last year. And James L. Brooks says it's comedy with a Eugene O'Neill element to it. Yeah. The article also uh, links to Eugene O'Neill's Wikipedia page to help people out. <laughs> and I was like, hey, fuck you, Hollywood Reporter. I've read The Hairy Ape. <laughs> I'm a learned man. <laughs> yeah. Like you said, sitcoms generally feel that way. I mean, think of Friends. There's a handful of key sets, yeah. uh, and and the the actions vary depending on if they're at the cafe versus they're at one of the apartments. Mm-hmm. Anything beyond that is a very sort of singular experience, depending on what the story needs. Mm-hmm. Um, but Taxi really doubles down on the garage. Yeah. And I think they do a good job of kind of making each character pretty distinct. Um, and we've already mentioned him before, but uh, the ostensible lead is Judd Hirsch, uh, well, played by Judge Hirsch. His name is Alex Rieger. And Brooks and co. basically wanted him from the get-go. And ABC said that he was too ethnic. <laughs> <laughs> Which I believe is, I mean... Are they implying he was too Jewish? I think so. Which immediately makes me think mm. of in Blazing Saddles when Harvey Corman's character is trying to think up a, a plot to get the, the, the townspeople out. And um, Slim Pickens' dopey sheriff is like, what if we kill the firstborn of every family? And Harvey Corman's like, mm, too Jewish. <laughs> um, which is such a... Yeah, too yeah. ethnic. What a waspy... Yeah. So they actually asked a bunch of other people, and they all turned it down. Really? And even Hirsch was kind of on the fence for a while. He was playing hard to get. In that oral history, Judd Hirsch makes a point about being asked to play the character. Originally, his name was Alex Taylor. And it was something as simple as a last name. He's like, I don't know who that person is. I can't play I can't play someone named Taylor. And the, and they were like, well, who could you play? And he he just thought of somebody who the character reminded of him of from his life and suggested a name change and suddenly he was able to inhabit the character which it, it seems like a a very actory thing to yeah to say but uh reading that oral history is interesting because all of the cast members who participate in the interview um each have a story like that where they mm-hmm. either auditioned for or were asked to be in the show mm-hmm. and they brought uh something of themselves to yeah. a character that was written differently um devito came in And, uh, well, there's a quote from him and it's amazing. He goes, basically I came in, took a couple of steps threw the script on the table and said, one thing I want to know before we start is who wrote this shit. Then there was dead silence and then they laugh like crazy. And that was my audition. Right. And Danny DeVito plays Louis De Palma, who is, um, certainly the most despicable character in taxi. And if not in the running for in sitcomdom, he's just such a. Just a gross, low life. Mm-hmm. Um, but he tries to take advantage of people, and yeah. But, but there's they. What's so great about the show is they kind of they never really justify 
his behavior, but they make you understand. His right. Behavior. They don't give excuses. They occasionally give explanations. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm not, you know, the fact that he's a deplorable human in the show um, should, that's not, not, I'm not saying that as a negative. It's a lot of fun to watch. And it's, he's doing a variation of it now as Frank on It's Always Sunny. It's, it's a sort of uh, an unempathetic, you know, someone with a, a kind of confidence that probably isn't warranted. Yeah. Uh, even, although in Taxi, he's sort of, he has these moments where he's fully aware of just what kind of person he is mm-hmm. and revels in it. Yeah. Uh, so one of the episodes we watched was uh, in season one. It's episode seven. It's called High School Reunion. Uh, and so I have a clip right here of uh, Danny DeVito uh, as Louie and kind of giving part of his reason for why he is. So mm-hmm. we'll, we'll play that right now. And I see Shayla. She looks so beautiful. She looked just like a beautician. Wow. And I could see she was smiling big. And everybody said, hey, Louie, come on over and sit next to Sheila. And I figured, boy, I lucked out. And I moved over to the other side. And I saw they had a high chair there. Well, what'd you do, Louie? Well, what'd you do? I sister. Okay, you did it. You got me good. Enjoy yourselves. They sure took my advice. They were still laughing when I left. (laughs) And I went home, and I swore to myself then that one day I'd come back a big shot with all the money there was. And I'd walk into one of their high school reunions and make them all eat crackers, if you know what I mean. (laughs) And now, 20 years later, I'm not sure being a taxi dispatch is enough to do the job. I mean, that's the show in a nutshell. Yeah. It's really sad, but it still kind of makes you laugh. So in that clip, he talks about how you know people in his high school played a prank on him with the high chair and, and sort of taking advantage of his his small stature, which the show alternates using as something that comes back as, as one of Louis's weaknesses, uh, but they're also not afraid to play it for laughs either. In the pilot, Louis's up in the dispatcher's box for the, the first part of it. And he's just, you know, barking orders and yelling at people. And he's just this despicable human being. Um, and, and then, but then he like storms out of it. And that's the first time the audience sees, sees him head to toe, not obstructed by something. And he's suddenly, you know, half the size of the people he's just laying into. It's such a simple, obvious joke, but it works so well throughout the show is that the, he's he's really just this this tiny monster um <laughs> who just makes everybody's life miserable yeah. and yeah, yeah. He's, it's just it's so so fun to watch him just be louie and and that's also after that moment in the pilot too it's kind of like we're getting this out of the way they use it as his punchline they're saying here's his here's his height here's mm-hmm. his stature he's 411 all right let's you know that's part of it. We're not going to do that again. Right. Uh, and it, it's pretty great. Mm-hmm. We have another clip from this episode. And so basically what happens is, is 
Louis doesn't want to go to his high school reunion. And Bobby is one of the other characters on the show who is a, a part-time actor. He's trying to make it as an actor. He basically tells Louis, I'll go to the high school reunion for you. I'm an actor. I can be you. Yeah, uh, I've been studying you for years. Yes. And this kind of, uh, I wanted to highlight this as well because, you know, we haven't talked about Bobby yet, but also because this kind of leans into some of the absurdity of the show as well. I'm too complex a person. You can't be me. You can't be me. It won't work. It won't work. It's crazy. You can't talk like me. Maybe it would work. Yeah, so so Bobby is played again by Jeff Conaway, who uh, we mentioned earlier was Kanicki from Greece. So you can imagine that you have Danny DeVito, you know, he's he is Danny DeVito, mm-hmm. um, standing next to this tall, handsome, blonde actor. Uh, Bobby almost exclusively had his shirt unbuttoned like more than halfway down all the time. <laughs> so so the the idea of whatever happened in those intervening 20 years that Louis's classmates would <laughs> would buy into the idea that he had a not just a an absurd growth spurt <laughs> at 18 <laughs> um but yeah he became this very handsome guy and yeah Bobby's an interesting character yeah well first of all he leaves after season 3 mm-hmm. uh so with the episodes we watched he wasn't in a ton of them uh, the problem was that he he had a drug problem and there were some issues with him being to set on time mm-hmm. the the story that i read was you know he was so fucked up that they just redistributed his lines to other characters and then mm. kind of had the revelation that they didn't need the character yeah um, which is unfortunate because there are, are moments where bobby um has a lot of potential and brings something to the show. There are others where he, he's just, yeah. he, he doesn't have a lot to do. I think that he and Tony Danza, who in the show plays Tony Banta, <laughs> the, um, the aspiring boxer. Yeah. Um, he, uh, they, they sort of fit this classic sitcom archetype of the, uh, you know, the two goofballs off you know, giving commentary on the side. So mm-hmm. I'm thinking like, uh, uh, Norm and Cliff and cheers or, yeah. Uh, Joey and Chandler in Friends sort of fit that yeah. that tradition of, you know, they're they're kind of buddies. Um, and whenever there's something something sort of big happening, you know, the, the you can always bank on like the two of them having some sort of like mm-hmm. observation about what's going on. Where did you hear about the drug thing? Was that in the recent uh, reunion thing you read, or? It may have it may have yeah. been in there, yeah. So in this book, Hailing uh, Taxi, which is like this oral history of the show, and this came out in the eighties, so mm-hmm. it doesn't mention anything about that. And it says that he left the show of his own accord because he was kind of tired of the direction of his character, and they were having trouble writing for him because they he was similar to the Tony character. Um, but he he actually said, to tell you the truth, six weeks into the show, I already wanted to leave. I was already unhappy. And part of that was because I guess Paramount had initially said that he was the lead. 
you know, he was the number one on the call sheets, as they say. Sure. Uh, and that wasn't true. Uh, and then, so I guess he was right after Judd Hirsch. And so he's kind of put off by that. Uh, so when he left, he was saying that part of the problem that he saw was that he was playing an actor and he wanted to get rid of uh, the stigma of self-centered actor jokes. <laughs> and so he said, I wanted to get rid of the stigma that's put on actors. Sure, there are egotists in acting and users, but there are actors who really care about what they're doing, about their craft, their art, who want to say something about what they're doing and how much it means. I did get to convey that sometimes, but, he laughs ruefully, I had to do the other guy too, and that got me upset at times. I just wanted Bobby to be a little more caring. Which is weird, because Bobby did seem to care quite a bit, at least in the episodes I watched. Yeah, I think that sounds like it might be... Cover up, uh, not cover up. Maybe revision, self revisionist history. You know, I think who who knows, and I can't unfortunately recall exactly where I read my anecdote. Um, yeah, um, but I mean, he's he had drug problems, you know, throughout the the eighties, and uh, you know, even I think up until around his death. I don't know if he died because of drugs necessarily, but I know he was. He was having, uh, you know, that was that was a, an issue for him. Another great Bobby moment uh, is in the episode uh, that you've already mentioned. It's a two-parter. It's episode 21 and 22 of season one, The Memories of Cab 804. There's this cab that everybody likes to, to drive. It's Cab 804. Uh, and it's gotten into an accident. And um, in fact, who's the character that gets into the accident? Uh, John Burns is the character. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, John was a character only on that first season. Yeah. Um, and he was another character that was like Bobby, and they didn't really know what to do with him. He was too similar to Bobby and Tony. Mm -hmm. But anyway, he gets into an accident, and so all the characters are like, this is our favorite cab. So they're reminiscing about it and telling stories about it. And there's this one story where Bobby was held up. Um, so someone pulls a gun on him, and then Bobby pulls a gun on him. <laughs> and it's basically just a standoff with the two of them pointing a gun at each other in a cab for mm -hmm. like a good 10 minutes. It's pretty great. Right. Uh, and it ends up going all night. They end up switching guns at some point. <laughs> Turns out Bobby's yeah. wasn't loaded. Mm -hmm. uh, or, or no, the, the, the stick-up man's gun wasn't loaded, which they only find out after they switch guns, and then Bobby jams that gun into the gun the stick-up guy has. <laughs> yeah, it's um, so absurd. It's and great. then it all and it all builds up to this great punchline where so the stick-up man's going to leave. He's not going to get any money, but Bobby started the meter before he got held up. So he, oh yeah, so, <laughs> so the guy still owes him like thirty six yeah. bucks. <laughs> oh, that's so great. Yeah. yeah, and and that episode also has another great moment with uh, Tony Danza's character. <laughs> Tony Danza's Tony character. Danza's character. Hey. hey. Um, but Tony Danza or Tony Banta. Banta um, is, uh, tells the story. He's like, yeah, one time I, I helped this guy. He's going he's gonna to commit suicide. And I, and I talked him out of it. And they're like, oh, yeah, what, what happened? And he goes, well, uh, you know, I was driving him. And then he got off at the uh, Brooklyn Bridge. And he, he starts to jump over the edge. And I say, hey, don't do that. And he goes, okay. Yeah, and that's it. It's that's like the a non—it's a non-story, but it's he maintains so that he great. saved somebody's life. Yeah, yeah. Tony's a so in in the show, Tony's a boxer. He's mm -hmm. got big dreams, but he's a terrible fighter. Um, the the recurring joke is that Danny DeVito is always making money betting against him. There's a great scene in one episode where he he rattles off all the furniture in his living room, and he's like, "My end table was the so and so fight, and the sofa was the fight with such and such," and. He's just so awful to him, but he's um, 
Tony's always clinging mm-hmm. to this this idea that he's going to make it, and he has a really sweet revelation later on where he knows that he's not a great fighter, but in his mind, he's got moments in each fight that when he strings them all together, make one fantastic display of athleticism. And it's really, it's really kind of sweet. He's kind of dopey. Um, the writers referred to him as the middleweight bleeding champion of the world, <laughs> which is pretty great. Yeah. Um, uh, Louis at one point refers to him as the only boxer with, with a cauliflower back. <laughs> um, so there is an episode that we watch that focuses uh, on Tony and his boxing career, and it's called Out of Commission, and that's uh, episode 60, and that's in season three. And that was actually the first script by um, Sam Simon, who was, um, people don't know, is the co-creator of The Simpsons. Right. James yeah. L. Brooks also had a, a hand in that. Mm-hmm. And uh, apparently Sam Simon said it was uh, inspired by an article that he read in Sports Illustrated about you know, the abuse that boxers take. Uh, but Tony Danza helped him write it because he knew all the boxing terminology because he was a boxer before he was an actor and not a particularly good one. Right. Yeah. He he even talks about um, kind of like how DeVito showed up for his audition essentially as Louie and started ber- berating people. Danza had just come off of a fight. So he was all beat up. He had some broken bones in his hands. Um, originally, the idea was that it was going to be an Irish heavyweight. Um and, you know, as an example of what these performers brought to the characters that ended up getting filmed, it turned it into a, a younger, uh, smaller Italian fighter. Another thing about Tony, too, is that he was a Vietnam vet, which comes up a few times, especially when we meet um, Reverend Jim Ignatowski, Christopher Lloyd's character. Mm-hmm. But watching this, you know, I think you and I both came of age in a time where the Vietnam vet was kind of a trope. Uh-huh. I was surprised to to see that a sitcom had a character who mentioned being in the war, mm-hmm. but then it not becoming like um, a very special episode kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, again, the oral history sort of gives the impression that he was, if not the first, one of the first tv characters to 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 be a, uh, a, vet. you know, a veteran from from vietnam and and you kind of forget that uh, in 78 i mean that that's that's still a really raw wound so then when we do meet jim jim is on the flip side one of the first tv characters who really was em- a 60s drug casualty yeah embodies counterculture mm-hmm. um so he's spaced out i mean if you think of if you think of the the sort of cliche stoner character at this point i think what you're thinking of is something that's equal parts cheech and chong and equal parts jim i think there's a lot of jim that sort of trickled down into sort of um the on-screen stoner but he is so good this is a character that could have in a lesser sitcom or i think in a sitcom maybe from the 90s would have just wouldn't have felt genuine but christopher lloyd plays jim as straight as you can without shying away from the weirdness or how over the top he can be, but um, really kind of owns it. I think because you really get the sense that he's just this raw nerve, that he, he doesn't understand a lot of things. He is burnout. Oh, he's yeah. sincere and he's sweet. And so I think 
the characters on the sh- you root for him, but the characters on the show root for him as well. I, I, you're exactly right. I mean, the the reason he's a cab driver is because he's this person that the 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 cabbies have all encountered and and feel bad for him, but they know he's a nice guy and they want to do something for him, so they help him get the job. But that introduction is great because he and Tony. I shouldn't say he and Tony because Jim's clearly not aware of it, but Tony's not a fan from the get-go. And he says, you know, well, you know, well, you were uh, over here, you know, getting wasted and, and marching and having free love. You know, I was over there fighting your battles for you. What do you have to say to that? And Jim just kind of looks at him and goes, thanks. <laughs> um, and it's, they never make a, you know, again, they don't make like a, a, a a special episode kind of thing out of it. But the rest of that episode, Tony plays it and he's got kind of a chip in his shoulder and you get the feeling that even throughout subsequent episodes, it, it kind of takes him a while to warm up to Jim. And, but Jim is so much fun. Yeah. And so his first episode, well, so he pops up, um, in an early episode to, um, uh, I think to, to marry somebody. Yeah. Laka, I think needed a green card marriage or something. Yeah. So, Bobby finds Reverend Jim, who is this, yeah. uh, you know, ordained in some. Did you watch that one? I watched the clip. I didn't watch uh, of the wedding, and you know, Christopher Lloyd comes in as Jim, and he's you know burnt out, and he. I think maybe Alex questions the validity of the church, and Jim says something to the effect of, uh, "Oh no, we're real. We're cleared of all charges." <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it was just a one-off, and you know, but they liked him enough to bring him back. Yeah, especially when that John character left. So that John character we had mentioned was introduced in the pilot. He was kind of a, you know, uh, country rube in the big city. Yeah. You know, uh, didn't know where he was going or what he was doing and just sort of inadvertently gets a job at the at the garage as a cab driver. But there wasn't a lot to him. Mm-hmm. And I mean, especially um, to not stand out, to be a a member of this cast and not stand out is uh, a problem. Yeah. And it's, this is a hard cast to stand out in because all the characters are so good. Yeah. Um, So for, for, you know, they recognize that they could just let that poor guy off the hook because they didn't have anything for him, I guess. But yeah. So Jim pops up in season two again uh, with his own episode called Reverend Jim, a space odyssey. And, he shows up at um, what's the name of the restaurant that they Mario's Mario's uh, it's a frequent hangout for the gang mm-hmm. um, and so Jim shows up and they kind of take pity on him and they try to get him a job at Sunshine uh, and so they bring him in and Louie kind of instantly sees that he could take advantage of him um, but then it leads to um, he has to take um, a driver's test uh, in order to be a licensed cabbie and it leads to arguably the greatest gag uh, of the show's history and one of the funniest things that I've seen in a long time. Sure. Uh, and it's kind of along the lines of like um, the Simpsons rape gag uh, where Homer or no, where um, Sideshow Bob is. Uh, Same difference. Yeah. <laughs> where Sideshow Bob uh, keeps stepping on rakes and it goes on way longer than you anticipate and stops being funny and then becomes funny again and all that. But I think the clip is kind of self-explanatory, but I'm going to play it anyway. (laughs) 
What does a yellow light mean? Slow down. Okay. What? <laughs> like a classic who's on first but i can also kinda... i could also imagine that that on paper you'd be like come on this is stupid yeah it, it has to but his delivery is just perfect mm-hmm. uh and i think bobby's the perfect foil for that scene too because he's right alex would have realized after the first time oh he think he like yeah. he would have realized what was happening but yeah. bobby was just so nervous and also dumb <laughs> <laughs> but i think and this is, you know, to a larger point I was trying to make earlier about all of the characters and as silly as they get or as as over the top, the actors are just 100% committed. Like Christopher Lloyd's not, you know, telegraphing and mugging that he's like, he's like, he's not like, oh, here it comes again. I'm going even slower. He just like he's it's just all so uh, thoughtful and grounded the performances are they're they're very genuine they don't well they don't feel sitcom they're all they were all trained theater actors so i think they all went into this being like you know they took their job super seriously mm-hmm. maybe even to a fault because i know there was you know judd hirsch sometimes uh, there was contract negotiations and and he could be kind of uh, difficult i guess um we talked about Jeff Conway and in, in, in his issues too, and, and and his ideas about acting and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, Christopher Lloyd, he, um, regardless of how dumb Reverend Jim could be or how absurd it was, he never let on that he thought it was bad or stupid. Mm-hmm. Uh, he embraced the character and his just reaction to things, even he, how expressive his eyes were without overdoing things. Uh, and you can definitely see um, sitcoms and what they became in the 80s and the 90s and how people took that and then just dialed it up way too much, whether it was the Urkels of the world or, or anything on Full House. or. But another great Jim moment is um, this episode from the last season called Jim's Inheritance. Uh, and in it, uh, Jim's father passes away and leaves Jim uh, millions of dollars. And his siblings are kind of like, this dude is too irresponsible. And he's just out to lunch. So there's no way that this guy should have this money whatsoever. Uh, but in the end, uh, Jim's father leaves him this um, this trunk filled with stuff. And he pulls out his dad's... Um, suit and he lays it down on the couch and he talks to it and it's a genuine moment and he finds in the in the trunk of this cassette of stevie wonder and he puts it on 
and and his expression when he's like, "You like Stevie Wonder too," and it's a, such a sweet moment because, you know, from that point we, the character he had like a, a rough relationship with his father, and this is a moment of connecting to his father after he's died, uh, and it's a really sweet moment, and he plays it beautifully, and it doesn't feel like a sitcom; it feels like. Uh, again, kind of like a, a drama or a play or something, but it's fully earned. It never feels like it's coming out of nowhere. Right. I think at its best, Taxi was always more about, it cared more about the characters than than telling a, a, a wacky story every week. That character study element is really what I've walked away from enjoying most about this show. There's another great gym episode, which I'm going to use as a segue because we, we still have a couple of characters to talk about. But there's an episode where he is invited to a, a fancy gala type event with Elaine, who is played by Mary Lou Henner. Um, and, and, it's and, called Elegant Iggy. Elegant Iggy. And, you know, the big... The sort of uh, elephant in the room is that Jim is a complete space cadet, and that he's uh, he's not groomed for high society. So they go to the opera or or like a symphony, and any mm-hmm. kind of he doesn't he, make a scene, but he he he's Jim. Yeah, and then they both get invited to um, this party by this high society woman who um, who Elaine is trying to impress. Mm-hmm. And she tries to uninvite Jim and he just, he, he gets really crushed and it's sort of one of the moments where he, he sort of sees himself the way other people do. Uh, And then she can't bring herself to do it. And she invites him. He also just bought like a, a a ridiculous tuxedo (laughs) with like tails and a top hat. Um, and it all builds to this moment where he he sort of gets into a situation where he's asked to play piano for everybody, and Elaine knows how it's going to go, and it starts to go that way, and he he he's kind of like hacking his way through. Um, Mary had a little lamb or something, and then suddenly discovers that mm-hmm. he can play the piano, and it's a shock to him. He even says, "Oh, I must have taken music lessons or something." <laughs> He he also does an impersonation of a water bubbler. Oh yeah, he just like puts a bottle in his mouth <laughs> yeah. and spewing out of his cheeks. Yeah, I I have a few clips from that episode. This episode arguably is the funniest episode I, that I watched. I think um, from start to finish. But the first part is when he shows up dressed to the nines for the first time I, that I think we've seen on the show. Uh, yeah, so he shows up at Elaine's house and he um, I won't spoil. Here's the clip. You're gorgeous. Oh, that. Wow. Thank you. I I never tire of hearing that. (laughs) Flowers for a beautiful woman. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, Corsage for a beautiful woman. Oh, yeah. A box of chocolates <laughs> for a b- beautiful woman. <clears throat> uh, a pen and pencil set <laughs> for a, a beautiful woman. 
A dozen lamp chops. <laughs> or navel oranges. I forget which. <laughs> and a Yorada. <laughs> for a beautiful one. Jim, you shouldn't have. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was nothing. <laughs> I think what's great about that, um, you know, we're it's similar to the um, the yellow light gag uh, from the Reverend Jim, the Space Odyssey episode, where it goes on longer than you expect it to. But it also has like a few of those curveballs at the beginning where, you know, he's saying like, oh, I, I never get tired of people telling me how great I look, which is like he constantly looks like a schlub. So obviously they're trying to undermine our expectations and but that's kind of like in a nutshell what the show does really well as these kind of like you know jokes that are always going in unexpected directions but also playing on the absurdity but also the sadness of the situation because here's a guy who's probably he probably hasn't been on a date in a long long yeah. time he has no idea what to do so why not maybe get some lamb chops and a yoda doll <laughs> or, or a bag of oranges he or a bag know. of oranges. he doesn't know yeah so let's talk about uh, we've we've brought up Elaine yeah. a few times. So uh, Elaine again, played by Mary Lou Henner, is a single mom. She's got two kids, two kids, two kids. Uh, gets work at the cab company to help, you know, pay for expenses. But mm-hmm. she's also her, you know, her thing. Everybody else, everybody's got a thing. Um, she works at an art gallery. Yeah, uh, and again, kind of like how Jim and Tony were. Uh, sort of uh, early examples of, you know, the f- fallout of counterculture or uh, Vietnam vets in a sitcom. Uh, there's a lot to Elaine's character that I was really surprised to see on a show from 78 and 79. Uh, being a single mom who, um, you know, had to take this job that she didn't want but was still... Um, trying to like really making an effort for herself you know it's not just i'm gonna do this 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 job i hate because i gotta do it for my kids it's i gotta do this job i hate because not only do i have kids but i have i have things i'm passionate about and things i want to i want to make happen for myself and i'm not willing to give that up there's room there's room for all of this to exist and i just i know that if uh if i if i do the work i can get it Mm -hmm. which is great and there's an episode uh, later where she goes to see a therapist at Alex's suggestion, and I don't know if that's one that was on our list. No, I didn't. I didn't see that one. Um, but there's a lot of things going on there. She's really, um, really kind of at the end of her rope. She's got too much going on. She's not doing any of it really well. So, on top of it being an episode kind of showing those struggles, it's also an episode where. Um, Another character, again, this is the late 70s, is is saying it's okay to get help. Maybe you should see a therapist. Um, she kind of throws herself at Alex in that moment, um, and which was also impressive for the late 70s. He uh, is the, is does the right thing and is and says like you know I uh, I'm flattered. Believe me, I have feelings, but you, you're clearly not in the right headspace for this. Uh, Sam Malone wouldn't have said no. Um, Sam may have, maybe would have done the right thing in the end, but probably would have got her gotten up to her apartment before he changed his mind. Yeah. Um, but Elaine's a a great character, and yeah. she's so, 
um, loving and also as tough as, I mean, more than anyone, she's sort of on the receiving end of some of Louis's worst traits. And I, I I honestly think that she kind of gets a little bit from everybody, unfortunately. Um, And part of that is, you know, this was the seventies, but in the hailing taxi book, um, which again came out in the eighties, a lot of the talk about her and why she was hired was because of how she looked. Really? It's kind of a bummer. Uh, And even the way they talked about her um, in the book and the way that the writers talked about her. And these are all not 40 year retrospectives. These are like a few years after the show were canceled. They all say that she was, you know, fiercely independent and really smart. Um, but most of the conversation in this book revolves around how she looks, uh, unfortunately. And even getting a little ahead of myself, but when it switched networks, there was a chance that they um, could have been picked up on HBO. And even Jim Brooks, uh, James Brooks said, um, on possibly moving to HBO, he said to Mary Lou Henner, he said, if we do this show on HBO, the first shot is going to be your bare breast to let them know we're on cable now. Uh, that's a bummer. Yeah, it's a that's super gross. Bummer. Yeah. Uh, and there's a bunch of other moments, too, where they kind of, it's always, uh, especially the way Louie talks to her, oftentimes is kind of sexist. But they always kind of, even in, uh, there's an episode where uh, she goes to get her hair cut, and a lot of times the men are stepping in to try and take care of things. And, like, I don't want to poo-poo the show too much because it is from the 70s. They did a lot of things well with her, as you already mentioned. Um but there were certain things that were, you know, I guess of their time. Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's so that's a good segue into uh, an episode that deals with Louis and Elaine in particular called Louis Goes Too Far. And you're right. This this is a show uh, very much of its time for mm-hmm. better and worse. Yeah. Um, so in this episode. Elaine catches Louie for having a peephole in the the women's bathroom at the cab company. Uh, Catches him immediately, throws him under the bus immediately to the credit, I suppose, uh, of the writers. Um, The male characters who she complains to immediately take her side and rally behind her and try to defend her. Yeah, Tony wants to beat up Louie. Yeah, Tony's ready to beat the crap out of him. Yeah. Um, you know, Alex is not surprised and lets Louie know, um, you know, she goes and, uh, brings a, she gets a lawyer, gets Louie fired. Nobody's particularly upset that this is happening. Um, no, but then Louie shows up at her house and, and, and begs for forgiveness and she won't relent. Um, we have a clip from, from this episode and this is just, uh, an amazing piece of acting from, um, Danny DeVito. Louis, has there ever been a moment in your life when your most basic, fundamental right as a human being has been violated? Your right to privacy? I'm sorry I violated your right to privacy. No, it's not just repeating what I just said. I'm sorry I repeated what you just said. Louis, think for a second. But I can't. I'm too nervous. Have you ever been violated? <laughs> yes. When? What, do you want a story? Yes, I do. Okay. 
twice a year. I got a little Michael. I got a little Michael. <laughs> twice a year, I, I have to go get new clothes. And I, uh, I, uh, the only way that I can, the only way I can get anything to fit me is, uh, I have to go to uh, a men's store and walk straight to the boys' department and ask if they have anything in the husky sizes. Huskies, I hate them. <laughs> I, uh, I don't, I usually, you know, try to go when there's nobody there. I, I go during school hours. But no matter when I go, the place is crawling with kids. Uh, I don't even look at what I'm getting. I just go over to the rack, take it off my size, and I rush into the dressing booth. The last time one of the mothers said, you're lucky. At least you won't outgrow it in six months. Did you say anything to her? I mooned her. <laughs> but the, the worst moment is when you gotta push open those doors and walk out into that room wearing your new corduroys, making that noise. <laughs> and then all the parents tell their kids not to stare. Is that the way I made you feel when I peeked? Kind of. God, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, <laughs> so, before we get into the very end of that, because if... Obviously, you can't see what happened, um, so I'm sure it's jarring just listening to it, the audio of it. Um, but I mean, how heartbreaking is his performance there? Right. It's it's really it really is tragic, and I think. Well, he said, you know, that was based on his real life. Like it was part of an improv thing, and um, they went with it. They said it was really good, and it it also works because she's really good in it too. Like you could. You could see her turning. You could see her listening to him. Um, and that's where the whole um, four-camera thing works well because it doesn't linger too much on him. and stays in wide shot for a bit to see both of them. Uh, and doesn't get too, too close on him. Not too many close-ups. Sure. It allows them to interact with each other a little bit more maybe. Um, but that ending, um, you know, what essentially happens, what causes people to laugh is after she realizes they have sort of a... You know, she comes to an understanding of why he is the way he is or, or 
they have a shared moment. Yeah, she gets in some insight into what makes him do the gross things he does, but she also has succeeded in her point to to make him put himself in somebody else's shoes. Yes. And then the scene ends where he grabs her butt. Yeah. They hug. They hug. Yeah. And then he, he grabs her And that's her what everybody's laughing at in the clip. Uh and yeah, do so, you think it do you think it undermines what they're what they're trying to do? Do you think it undermines the whole episode? Uh I think now I think from it's I, I think given the the moment our culture is sort of in the middle of yeah we're hyper aware of that stuff yeah and i don't and i don't think that that hyper awareness is a bad thing at all i don't think this is me reading too much into it i think that to read it the way the writers intended it 40 years ago uh would reflect poorly on my part or anybody's part i think I, i don't think i don't subscribe to the idea that just because uh art was made prior to a certain larger cultural conversation happening that uh it should be examined uh exempt from that conversation but i think there is uh there is room to watch a 40 year old episode of taxi and and recognize where the writers may have been forward thinking Mm -hmm. um and pointing that out, I think we've done that quite a bit in our conversation and, and certainly in regard to this episode with their treating of what Louis does to Elaine up until the point where he grabs her ass is, is pretty um, progressive for the time. But I, I, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, that 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 button kind of, you know, that laugh they go for at the end just seems like it was, it wasn't, it seems like it wasn't necessary. Yeah. And I think I can, I can see why 40 years ago it's just a punchline, but uh, it just, it seems like you were going, it seems like an easy laugh that didn't need to be reached for. I think what the show always tried to do is like anytime it would get heavy, it, it undermine that with like a laugh. And I think it always kind of works because most of the time they're talking about, Hey, our lives suck, uh, and, and and it's hard to find any meaning. So let's just pull the rug out and let's laugh at this. But I think in this moment, it feels a little weird. And again, that is partly because of right now, uh, living right now. Um, there, I do have another clip from earlier in the episode, and I wanted to play this because I think um, it's a good look into Louis's character. Uh, and and you know, we're kind of shit talking Louis right now, but I do think he is. Um, the best character aside from Jim. Uh, I think he's fully realized and compelling and interesting. And you do have um, empathy for him. Um, right. And regardless not, of him being this awful person. Right. And, th- and these, these examples that we're using showing the empathy that the writers have for Louis are, are not uh, par for the course. They're not necessarily outliers either, I'm, but it's not like every episode involves Louis being a creep and then Louis showing uh, a little more of his yeah. humanity. Um, Louis is, uh, I guess, what's the opposite of an anti-hero? Because he's, vi- he's the bad guy, but he's also a not the bad guy. Yeah. Um, well, well, let me play this clip and then uh, I think we can get into it a tiny bit more. You never liked me and I never liked you. 
I'm going out there and I'm going to claw, backstab, lie, cheat, walk all over people. Do whatever I have to to get to the top of this dung heap we call a life. And when I get there, I'm going to spit on all you losers. Uh, I miss them already. <laughs> um, aside from that little button at the end from Jim, uh, that's... Uh, that follows the moment when Louis loses his job. Uh, and I think what it illustrates is that, you know, there's so much anger in there. And I think that's something that this character lives with. And I think the show does so, so well. That here's someone who, as he says, I will I crawl up. And I feel like that's why it works. Because this is someone that's, that's all he's known his whole life. Uh, and, and you just feel sorry for the guy. Right. Well, not really. You not know, in not, this moment there, necessarily, but I think in total. The scene we played earlier with him revealing something true to Elaine, you know, that's him showing some humanity. But that exit is just is him showing how much he's fueled by spite. Yeah. Um, and that's hard to empathize with. I mean, you can understand where somebody. I think it's mostly because. It's the only. It's his only way of combating against people that say point at him and laugh at him. I think that last those two things together, those two speeches, work really well to mm-hmm. understand him. And again, like this is a sitcom, right? Uh, and I think that's what separated it from everything else at the time, and and or what makes it stand the test of time right now too. Like. I was really kind of startled with the quality of a lot of the writing in this. Yeah. And then yeah. even to, to, to get back to Elaine, cause this is really, um, yeah, her I, episode. I think, uh, the strength of the character to fight for something that so many women of the time were just sort of, you know, had been conditioned to think that this is just shit I have to deal with. If, you know, if I want to, be a part of the world. This is something that, you know, us girls got to deal with. This is, yeah. ju- this is just how it is. Um, her, her, her willingness to fight for it is really forward thinking. And then even beyond that, you know, this is tricky to sort of think about too, if whether it's her giving Louis a pass or her depth of character, wanting beyond him being punished to also understand why, what he did was so vile. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just, I, I like you said, I, between the two of them, um, there's a lot of really dramatic, heavy lifting for a half hour sitcom mm-hmm. happening. And, and she, she, she brings that to, to her character a lot. The yeah. scene with going back to, um, what was it? Stories of cab 804. Uh-huh. Is that the name of it? Uh, her story in that, in that sort of anthology of the cab is great where she meets, um, this handsome, almost like dream fair, played by uh, played Burt by Reynolds. no Tom Selleck, <laughs> played by Tom Selleck. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're, you're getting your your seventies wow. mustaches confused. I guess so. Um, you know, she sort of picks up this this gentleman who turns out to be um, sort of her yeah. her perfect dream man, and they end up just sitting in he 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 um, he needs to drive out to the country. So it's a long fare and it's a long ride back and they end up talking the whole night and it's just this really lovely short 
romance and she's very, you know, responsible and uh, in control of the situation. At and, the same time as being open t- to her sexuality. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, Without being like, uh, because this, she's telling the story. She's telling them like, I had the hots for this guy. I wanted to jump his bones, and that felt kind of like a little progressive for its mm-hmm. time. Well, I mean, the seventies was all about everyone having sex, but yeah, yeah. Um, but you get the point. Um, and on the flip side of that, in the Confessions of Cav Eight O Four, which is Louis' story, in that is him being taken advantage of by a young boy, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> which uh, um, further. Uh, um, exemplifies you know how he's treated and and looked at by other people Mm -hmm. yeah um this private school brat who he's commissioned to to drive to his uh his um fancy private school for the semester um just schemes him out of all this money they just keep making these dumb bets and they're these dumb like schoolyard bets and louis willingness to take advantage and steal money from a child clouds his judgment and allows him to sort of fall into all these really obvious traps that this kid is setting for him. And then in the end, he ends up taking the kid for all he's got. He, he, he wins the $600 the kid was given for his semester and feels bad. So he gives him 20 back. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, everyone's disgusted that he took the money from the kid. And there's the great race episode where, um, Alex uh, challenges him to a night to see who could make more money in the night. Because basically, Louis like, when I was driving a cab and not just being the dispatcher, I brought in tons of money, and you bozos are the worst. So they're like, no, Alex is better than you. So they both go out at night, and and throughout that evening, Alex is trying to do the right thing and try to not be Louis. Um, he picks up um, some older women. Uh, so no, he picks up some nuns. Yeah, and they're yeah. they're bickering about what movie to see. I actually have that clip. Yeah, that's great. All right. Let's go, girls. Where are we going? Hello there. Hi. Where to? Going to the movies. Could you be a little bit more specific? Oh, well, we haven't decided what movie to see yet. I wanted to see the Muppet movie. Perfect choice. I can't stand that little frog. (laughs) I want to go to a revival of uh, The Sound of Music. One of my favorites, Sound of Music. We've seen it 12 times. No, no, you you can't see that one too many times. Look, uh, please, uh, I don't mean to be rude, but I'm in kind of a hurry tonight, so can you make a decision, please? You got to pick last time. And I made an excellent choice. Girls, girls, girls. Look, I'm, I'm a nice guy. I really am. And I'm going to hate myself tomorrow. But I'm trying to win a contest here tonight. And I, I would really wish you... Uh, would you get out of my camp? Get out of camp, please. No, please, both of you. Get out of camp. Please, out. What am I doing? I'm turning into Louis de Palma here. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Get back in. Get back in. Come in. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I lost my head. Uh, please, forgive me. That's all right. Look, uh, please, I'll take you anywhere you want to go. Just tell me, where do you want to go? Your choice. Well, anywhere but the sound of music. What's wrong with the sound of music? Pick a movie, Muppets! Muppets! And on the flip side, um, Louis, uh, throughout the evening, tries to take advantage of a blind man. Twenty one twenty Ninth Avenue in Brooklyn. Just one thing could make this perfect. This is my first time in New York. That's it. 
Uh, <clears throat> it'll be twenty-two fifty, please. No, it's not. <laughs> what are you talking about? I've been counting the clicks on the meter. Clicks? It now reads exactly six dollars. You're a very dishonest person. I think I'd better warn you. I happen to be a very big, muscular guy. Then you must be talking out of your belly button. <laughs> Here's your six dollars. You got a lot of nerve calling yourself handicapped. <laughs> so the the big the big uh, conclusion there is that Louis does bring in more money than Alex, but because he's such a scumbag, what ends up losing the competition in favor of Alex is that Alex made more in tips. Yeah. Uh, and it has this amazing, amazing final line could be my favorite, uh, of the whole, of the episodes I watched. Uh, and I have that too, because I just think it's so perfect. And again, we're talking about how oftentimes it'll, anytime it goes for that moment where it's just like, here's a little heart, it completely undermines it. I tell you, I tell you something, you know, I, I do love Louis. And Louis loves luck. Thank you very much. And I, also, I do love Alex, too. And Alex loves Latka. Yeah, she's right. Thank you very much. <laughs> you know, this, this is a wonderful place to work. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> and decide! Decide what? But the, about the contest! Oh. Mm well, what is the question? Do tips count? Oh, of course they do. Listen up here. Okay, listen up here for a second. I just want to say one thing. I hope you all die. <laughs> <laughs> And that's how the episode ends. Oh, so, so good. Oh, it, it's so great because like he gets up in his little cage that's uh, where he does the dispatching from. And there's that beautiful beat where he says, I just have one thing to say. Uh, and he tells them all that they, he hopes they die. <laughs> it's so perfect. It's such a great ending and so offbeat. And that's, a, that's an example of that kind of pulling the rug out and one last joke kind of thing working. Unlike the... Louis goes too far episode, right. maybe. Mm -hmm. um, but earlier on in that clip, um, we had an appearance by Latka, and we haven't mentioned Latka at all. Right. And I think I think it's interesting that we just are discussing Latka, played by Andy Kaufman, last, because I think the myth of Andy Kaufman looms large over the show mm -hmm. in a way that might not be the best for the show's legacy. Yeah. Because I think I, I didn't hammer too much on it when we were talking at the beginning about what our sort of familiarity with um, with Taxi was. I mentioned the movie Man on the Moon where Jim Carrey plays Andy Kaufman and, and several of the cast members portray themselves. Uh, but it, it really was it, – it's so closely associated with um, the legend of who Andy Kaufman was. Yeah. And – I think I liked him more than you did, but he's certainly not like now that I've watched 
you know, 12, 15 episodes of yeah. the show, um, he's hardly my favorite. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not going to say that I disliked him. I just, maybe he's my least favorite part, I guess. Um, well, let's go back to the beginning because I think uh, it's important to talk about how he came to the show, why the writers wrote for him specifically, and all, some of the behind the scenes stuff too because I think it colors the character. But um, I guess like he was part of the show from the get-go. Like that was part of the contract. And I think that was like with his contract with ABC. And they went to go see him perform. And he kind of like... I guess you could call him a stand-up, but he—he he was more of a performance. He was artist. a performance artist, yeah. But he had the what he called his foreign man character. It's called foreign man. Character. Yeah, and the the shtick was that he did the voice, which was Latka's voice. He would come out doing this very like shy um, character and do the voice, and he would say, "I'm going to do uh, an impression of President Carter." And then he would pause and then in that voice and without changing anything, he would say, hello, I am President Carter. And like that was the joke. Yeah. Or he he would like fumble on jokes and he'd be like almost the joke was that he was a foreigner and he was bad at stand up. But the audience wasn't in on this until later on. But it was also part of the setup because then he would say, I'm going to do an impression of Elvis Presley. Mm -hmm. And having done several impressions, people are expecting him to just say like, hello, my name. Hello. Like, hello, my name is Elvis Presley. But then he would do this genuinely amazing um, Elvis impression, and people weren't expecting it. And then he would, you know, end it with "Thank you very much" and yeah. the whole Mighty Mouse thing that he did on SNL. Yeah, and then it was, you know, it was all part of his. You know, Andy Kaufman was anti-comedy before there were yeah. um, podcasts I think talking about it. He always talks about wrestlers, like he loved wrestlers, and I think part of it was because wrestlers were always in character, and I think that's what he took from that, and that's what he always wanted to, to emulate, always being in character. Right, and he he really reveled in his his heel character that he came up being the yeah. the champion of um, uh, intergender wrestling, and like he, he was just he played a character that Louis De Palma probably would have been friends with. He was just this just this really nasty misogynistic guy who who prided himself in in you know beating up women in the ring but then he he got to know actual wrestlers and got guys like Jerry Lawler in on the act so you know Jerry Lawler would you know punch him over a couch on Letterman but um, he was so in on the act that they even in that the movie about Andy Kaufman they don't really reveal that he was in on the act no i mean there were it, yeah, it's really his whole life seemed to be sort of a performance. Yeah. And it's one of those things where, again, I think the the legend sort of became so big. It's hard for the show to live up to that, I think. Right. And I and I and I don't think I don't think it should be because yeah. there's so much great about Taxi and about the entire cast that, you know, unfortunately, Kaufman dying as young as he did really cemented this and it's interesting to hear hear them talk about it you know down the road i I watched uh an interview with tony danza and he talks about how he's like i didn't you know i didn't really like him um and then he he sort of i don't think any of them really did well uh, the the point though is like you know he he sort of concedes he came around to it he sort of got what andy was doing but at one point in the interview he says i i think at the end of the day andy would have loved the fact that we're doing what we're doing right now and we're talking about him. 
Well, I think part of this, the apprehension of the cast with Andy also has to do with they signed him with two contracts. So one for Andy Kaufman and one for his character, Tony Clifton, which is so weird. But they were like, well, the money was the same. So what did it matter to us? Uh, But he also signed a contract and he had a special arrangement that he would only appear about 13 episodes a season and that he would only um, rehearse two days a week. He provided a stand in for when he wasn't there. Uh, so I can understand like this super tight knit cast. Um, every Friday after they'd finished filming, they'd have like these massive parties for every single episode. And this was something that um, like every cast member would contribute money into. And it became this big thing for the cast and crew after every episode they filmed. So you could see a, a cast like that being kind of like, oh, who is this guy? Um, but he came in and they wrote specifically. Uh, this character of Latka, and Latka is Yiddish for potato, pancake. Um, but they specifically wrote this character to be like his foreign man character that he did on stage. Uh, and I think the thing is, is like, I just, I don't know if I find him just doing gibberish that funny. I think he has moments of being funny, and usually that's the stuff that's kind of written for him or how he's reacting to things. But anytime that he's just doing this gibberish thing, I just my eyes kind of glaze over just a bit. Yeah. The joke is that he talks different than us and that's, yeah. And the whole thank you very much, uh, thing is like, uh, you know, he's a character with a catchphrase on a show that is, you know, this, it, that's pretty nuanced mm-hmm. uh, and, and they don't overdo it. So I think to the show's credit, they definitely don't like when he shows up in later seasons, you're not just kind of like, Oh God, but they did allow him to do other things. Um, because he kind of shit on the show. Like, he was just like, oh, this is kind of beneath me. Yeah, he seemed like he really... Well, he didn't want to do it. Yeah. And he seemed to have contempt for sitcoms in general. Yeah. So he came up... They came up with this character, Vic Ferrari, where his, it's sort of his alter ego, where he wants to basically impress women. So he becomes up with this kind of sort of satire of uh, American male... Um, like a playboy. Machismo. Uh, yeah, I think, but even more than him wanting to impress women, I think, you know, at least they came up with a clever conceit that he felt like even the his fellow co-workers at the, the cab company tended to be patronizing. And, yeah. you know, they he said something like, um, you know, you, you all call me, uh, you know, like cute little latka or something like that. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, and that's, um, you know, that's an interesting move that. Because they kind of do, they're they're sort of yeah. protective of him, but they they assume he's naive because he doesn't know. You know, he's he's not as fluent in American customs, but that's yeah. um, that's a that's a, a shitty assumption for yeah. anybody to make, just because. Uh, um, the, and this all comes to a head when he does ask a woman out yeah. to um, to get a drink, and she turns him down. So he he takes a week off of work with a stack of Playboys. <laughs> um, yeah. And then comes back as this sort of swaggering. It reminded me a lot of of the sort of like asshole persona Steve Martin would throw on doing yeah. during stand up. Very like a very cool modern now kind of guy. Um yeah, I have a clip uh from this episode. It's called Latka the Playboy. And this is the first appearance of his alter ego, uh Vic Ferrari. Uh and I I I picked this clip because I think it's something that I like, and it's you could tell it's something that Andy likes, uh, and where it's 
kind of this moment where he's practicing and it kind of goes on again another moment where it's like longer than you think it would probably go on for and it's just him doing the same thing over and over again in order to play variations on this thing where it starts to become absurd and slightly surreal Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah let's listen to that (laughs) i am going to alter my lifestyle to fit the fast lane Huh? Alter my lifestyle to fit the fast lane. 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 my lifestyle <laughs> uh, and in you know for people listening obviously like there's a lot of goofy mannerism, mannerisms that kind of go along with that um mm-hmm. but you could you could tell that that's his kind of shtick right there like, sure that's his bread and butter he likes to do this modulation thing where he's playing with his voice and what he can do and it, repeating this pattern and all that stuff and 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 that's the kind of stuff i i i that kind of interests me about the character. Later in the episode, he, he sort of becomes stuck as this Vic character, much to the displeasure of the rest of the employees at the cab company. And eventually Alex says, um, you know, maybe we were patronizing to Laka, but I liked Laka. And, and then he, as Vic, he pleads with Alex to help him because he's, he's, he knows he's stuck and he can't remember how to get back to being himself, which is also kind of a meta thing that I'm sure, Andy Kaufman uh, was interested in because, you know, if he didn't have a fear of becoming Latka the rest of his life and not being able to be whatever performer he wanted to be, he wouldn't have made these bizarre (laughs) stipulations to be on the show. And it's a super meta moment because they make reference to like, how do, what if I'm stuck like this? What if I am this way? And you could tell that most of it is like him talking about the Latka persona, but and Andy Kaufman in general, because um, who who is Andy Kaufman? I, I guess you know, right? And then uh, this this sort of split personality thing sticks around and comes back, and it feels very to diminishing returns. Yeah, yeah, it feels very like Steve Urkel, Stefan Urkel. Uh, even worse when uh, they decide to they really turn Urkel into a kind of mad scientist, and he he turns into Elvis Urkel and Einstein Urkel and. Um, it's, it's a, it's a, the multiple personalities for Laka feels like it just sticks out as such a, a gimmicky sitcom premise in a sitcom that is relatively free of them. Through Laka, they eventually introduce, um, his girlfriend who becomes his wife and that's played by Carol Kane and that's, um, Simka. Yeah. Uh, and, um, I, I really, well, I love Carol Kane. Yeah, she's wonderful. And I think like she she does the gibberish thing too, but I think what she does really well and that she brings to this I guess this made up culture is she's kind of feisty and angry. And that's what Carol Kane does really, really well. Um and and just kind of sort of on edge sometimes and and and, and always slightly off. And she's carried this through most of her career whether it was Scrooged or um, and currently in, in Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, uh, she's good at being the weirdo. Yeah, sure. And I think 
you know, kind of like like Latka resents his coworkers for for being patronizing. I think when and you know this gets to a larger point about representation in culture in general when Latka is the only example uh, of his culture in the show, you sort of assume that they're all like Latka and that they're all sweet and they're all kind of innocent. Um, but Simka shows that there, there is a, an energy and a, a sort of wild side to it. She's a lot of fun to watch because she's, um, she is so different, even though she does the voice. I don't know how many episodes you watched with Simka, but, um, the one that was on the list that we were following is called, uh, Scene skis from a marriage, which is you know, uh, the title is based off of Ingmar Bergman's mm. um, scenes from a marriage. This uh, this woman named uh, played by a- actress Alice Beasley, who eventually was had a prominent role in Moonlighting. Um, she gets stuck in her cab, uh, so um, Latka goes to to kind of rescue her. Oh yeah, she 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 breaks down in a, in a in a really bad snowstorm, and yeah. she's she's stuck, um, and no one can get to her, but. Um, but Latka knows where she is, so he takes it on himself to go to and go help rescue her. her. And then, so they're stuck in the car. The car is not working, and they're freezing. Um, and so, in order to to stay warm, they have sex. Right. Which, yeah, she suggests uh, is the only thing that could possibly save them. Um, and, <laughs> and, yeah, which is ridiculous. But where it goes is like. So at this moment, at this time in the series, he's married to to Simka, uh, and um, when she finds out, they basically part of their religion uh, says that uh, now Simka is allowed to uh, sleep with someone else. So they decide that she's going to sleep with someone uh, uh, in the Sunshine Cab Company. Right? Yeah. The, their priest says because Latka slept with a coworker, Simka has to sleep with a coworker. But because she doesn't work, she has to sleep with one of Laka's coworkers. Yes. So they have all of the men over uh, to their place uh, without telling them why. Uh, and then uh, they, 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 again, deferring to their tradition. Um, was it whoever the, shows up last? Yeah, whoever shows up yeah. last at, the, at a dinner party is the one who she is going to sleep and with. And she prays that it's not Louie. Yeah, and she, um, they're sort of they're weighing the pros and cons of, you know, what happens if it's so and so, and at the prospect of it being Louis. She asks Laka, "Will you still love me after I've lost my mind?" Um, <laughs> uh, and ultimately, it ends up being Alex. And and so she shows up at his place to sleep with him, and uh, he doesn't understand, and she's just like, "Ravage my body." Right, right. <laughs> uh, it's and it's a pretty funny scene, but he turns her down, and but it kind of gets into like he sort of makes fun of her religion, but then she kind of points out that she immediately flips it, and yeah, and you know, uh, uh, is sort of like, how dare you? I don't, I don't make you know, fun of you, yeah, you and what you do in in your life. There are a couple of things going on prior to this. She also has a really wonderful heart to heart with Elaine. I think what this episode manages to do really nicely is make the case for this made up culture. Uh, kind of like how we were saying with the Louis goes too far episode, watching that through a modern lens, uh, watching this episode or watching in general and, and seeing Andy Kaufman just make up gibberish. And it's sort of a, 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 a nondescript 
vaguely Eastern European culture. It seems kind of punching down. Like it's, it's, uh, uh-huh. it's an, it's, it's going for that easy. Um, the joke is they're different from us kind of thing. So in this conflict sort of weaponizes that gimmick to make a point about faith and um, about cultural differences and about, uh, you know, especially in that conversation she has with Elaine, what it means to be um, a woman who subscribes to a certain faith or, or comes from a certain culture, but is, is sort of having conflicting feelings about what that means for her personally. So I was not expecting, um, you know, Laka and Simka's made up silly for the sake of it backstory to sort of become this vehicle for these um, really wonderful character beats and, and sort of larger points about, you know, tolerance and acceptance and, um, that that internal struggle between, you know, your upbringing and um, what you know to be true to yourself and that kind of stuff. It has a goofy ending, but it's kind of sweet. Um, and I have a clip from the ending, and it kind of shows the resolution of this, um, where Simka shows up back home with Laka, and Reverend Jim is there, and uh, Alex tags along with her. Oh, I'm glad to see Alex. I stay with Laka. Because apparently he has some trouble, and I, I only wish I could follow it. <laughs> it seems... No, wait, Jim, Jim, don't worry about it. Everything is all right now. Alex, Simke and I are both grateful to you. Now get out of my sight, you swine. <laughs> I have bad news for you, my darling. I have been faithful to you. Oh, no. Uh, this is where I get confused. If I can get over this part, I know I can help him. So we must part now forever, my beloved. Latka, Latka! You're not going to go through with this, are you? Alex, we must. It is the only way. Are you ready to complete the circle? I must take one last look at you as my wife. Simka, you will always have my heart. I don't need it without you. I will miss you. I will miss your touch. I will miss the children we could have had together. Goodbye, Lat. Are they unhappy? <laughs> because they got divorced? Yeah. Why don't they just get married again? It's not that simple, Jim. You think they'd go through this kind of hell if they could just marry again? Piece of cake. Piece of cake. Yeah. I think that just kind of shows like what the show could do. Um, 
just in a couple of minutes right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the absurdity of the characters and their situation and but the way it resolves it and then with the punchline at the end, like it usually does. Yeah. Um, without making fun of them, which I think it's a nice little moment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the whole, you know, Latka thing is sort of fraught with potential to be making fun of the character or uh, making fun of, you know, his, his culture. And you know, from what I've, you know, what I did watch of the show, it tended to avoid falling into that trap. Mm-hmm. We've spent a lot of time talking about these characters individually and sort of our thoughts on them. I know personally I was surprised by how much I found, I found myself caring for these characters and how invested I became in them uh, so quickly. It, it really caught me off guard and, um, and I'm really, you know, really glad that we've we've sort of gone down this rabbit hole a bit yeah i I agree i was i wasn't really sure what to expect because i know it sort of has a cult following critics speak of it pretty highly um but i was like oh yeah i'm sure this is fine you know we're wrapping it up now and i'm kind of i earlier today i was looking online to see if i could find the box set of the whole series and it's like 20 bucks for the whole thing and and that that seems worth it for a hundred 12 episodes? Yeah, it was on, it was only on for five seasons, which was also yeah. surprising. I guess what happened in the end is, uh, according to James Brooks, they were on ABC, and around season four, uh, there was this episode um, that we watched, actually. Uh, I can't remember the name of it right now. Um, but uh, Elaine goes uh, to get a haircut. Oh, the uh, unkindest cut. Yes. And even before they had a script, they brought this to... The executives, because that's what they do. They show up and they they pitch what the episode is going to be, and they were uh, they're like, no, we're not going to green light that because of this gay hairdresser character. And so James Brooks was just like, this is nonsense, and he kind of quit the show. Uh, now this is you know all hearsay amongst all of the creatives, well, but he believes this was the thing that set off ABC, where they became combative with them. The ratings were always middling. Um, but they were good enough, and they were getting Emmys every season. They won for Outstanding Comedy, like, I think three years in a row. Uh, and so... But, well, back up. Yeah. Did the executives take issue in how a gay character is being portrayed or the fact that he was being portrayed at all? That he's being portrayed at all, yeah. And it is a very... It is a stereotype. It's a very campy... Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they didn't want it at all. Uh, and so that's what he was he was fighting for. And so he, like... Uh, said he quit, but I guess it was more of a threat. And then he came back, and then they had problems with the network. And they were really surprised more than anyone when the show got canceled. And then they started shopping it around, and HBO even thought about picking it up for a mm-hmm. while. And But because of the interest in AP, HBO, NBC picked them up. But when NBC picked them up to do their final season, there was a big hiatus from, like, the beginning of December till the end of January. And then it switched them from like, like Thursday nights to like Wednesday nights and then back to Wednesday nights and then to Saturday. And so it kept switching them around and then also big hiatuses and then the ratings tanked and then they canceled them at the end of that season. Yeah. So, um, um, and a couple of points to piggyback that gay mm -hmm. hairdresser was played by Ted Danson. Yes. Ted Danson. Um, and, um, Shelly, uh, long um, audition for uh, 
the Elaine character. Oh, really? Yeah, she did. And they said about Shelley Long that she was Jane Curtinish, very nice, wholesome, and bland. Oh. Yeah. Um, some other barflies were in the show. Uh, yep. George Went played an exterminator yep. who uh, was unable to defeat the, the cockroach that was uh, driving Louis crazy. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rhea Perlman. Yep. Uh, was Louis's Louis's girlfriend? Louis's girlfriend. Did you watch any episodes with her? I just watched the one where he he met her parents. Oh, okay, and and then in real life, uh, they're married. Yeah, which is adorable. It is. Mm-hmm. Um, Ted Danson played the hairdresser, and then mm-hmm. famously went on to play Sam Malone. Not long after that, mm-hmm. um, a lot of a lot of behind but, the but scenes. Mostly known for playing Becker, obviously, uh, and. and uh, if if you want to take the the time to find it or or we can post it or something, uh, Danny DeVito was hosting SNL uh, immediately after or very shortly after news that Taxi was canceled, and his whole monologue is um, is he's just so angry and he like you know he reads a a letter from his mom quote unquote it's it's very like eloquent and seething, um, but he talks about how even. Even on like the worst, even the worst play, the cast gets to do their their final bow because there's always a bow at the end of the show, and how he regrets that Taxi would never get its final bow, and then um, suddenly he welcomes the entire cast out onto the SNL stage, and they all get to do their bow, and of course NBC picks them up for one more season. The level to which these actors cared about their, their characters. characters really is evident. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a, a nice uh, yeah. sort of real life moment to. Yeah, they didn't actually get like a final episode, but the last episode. There's technically two episodes that are like a retrospective, so it's all clip. They're like clip shows, um, but the last actual episode is called a grand gesture. In the episode, Reverend Jim um, has just been handing out money to people uh, from his inheritance. Alex is like, dude, you you can't do this. Like, you can't just give money away. And he's just like, but it makes. He's like, I'm doing it for selfish reasons. It makes me feel better. Why don't I give money, a little bit of money to everyone here, and then you give it away and see how it feels? And so he gives everyone a thousand dollars, and they all are tasked to kind of give it away. And it's it's a, it's a sweet little final episode, surprisingly, uh, especially because Louis tries to give it to uh, the character of Jeff Bennett, who's the guy who's kind of like an extra who ended up being um, having a small role in the in the show. He's always kind of in the cage with Louis. Yeah, he's almost like the assistant dispatcher. Yeah, and he tries to give him the $1,000, and, and, and this character, uh, Jeff, doesn't believe him. <laughs> it's a nice moment, and they kind of, in the end, he, he convinces him, like, no, I, this will make me feel better. And then they kind of hug, and then Reverend Jim is just like, you know, I told you so. Yeah. It's a nice moment, uh, mm-hmm. surprising moment for the show. And, uh, but it's so dark underneath everything that I think it's okay for it to end on that kind of uplifting little bit of moment yeah do you have a favorite moment or a couple of or even if it's just like a couple of scenes or whatever i'm assuming they're gonna be related to jim but (laughs) yeah oh of course i mean the whole elegant iggy episode i think is incredible i think it's just an amazing performance from both of them it's just it's so unbelievably funny i couldn't believe how funny it was Uh, his performance is just to watch him as he plays piano um and just trying to be this space cadet amidst these uh, upper crust kind of pseudo intellectuals, wealthy people. Uh, it's super funny. 
I, I loved the final moments of Jim's inheritance where he's reconciling with his dead father. Uh, and I, and I do love, um, a lot of Louis moments. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's, he's just, I think DeVito is extraordinary. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, I think the whole cast is good, but I think those two in general, I think they're just, and, and that kind of makes sense if you see their post careers, like who are the people that everyone sort of remembers, which is, you know, a little unfair because Christopher Lloyd is mostly just known for Back to the Future um, and a few other things after that. But the rest of them have done kind of, you know, little bits here and there. But DeVito's career, man, I mean, it's such an unusual career. It really he's is. All, sort of like a leading man for a while. I mean, in the right roles or if he had like foils with him. But he was like the headliner, you know? Sure. And there's, there's, uh, there's something that carries over from Louis into so many of it. Like there's... In the episode where Elaine gets the haircut, Louis does this thing where where they all go to confront the hairdresser, and he's like, he's so angry about the the bad haircut that Elaine got, and he's he's making just this like growling sort of like weird animal noise, and I was like, oh my god, it's the penguin. <laughs> um, he had the same kind of nastiness to the penguin, and like I said, I, I mean Frank on It's Always Sunny is yeah. is not too far removed from louis either what about you do you have any favorite moments or episodes yeah i would have to agree that it's hard to avoid a a favorite scene that doesn't involve jim or or louis um there's one scene from reverend jim a space odyssey where he's meeting everybody for the first time and he slips a a tranquilizer into louis drink and then kind of uh, lures him into a sing-along of uh on moonlight bay and so Louis getting really, really high and, 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 and dopey and Jim's leading him along. And then the rest of the cabbies all start singing. It's just, and they do the whole thing. Like it's, it's, it's a much longer beat than I was expecting it to be, but it's just, um, it's one of those absurd moments that really stand out. Uh, despite it being really awful, I loved the the idea that Louis would get a Pac-Man machine for the garage just to prey on Jim's addictive impulses. Um, and, he, and he pays him in exchange. <laughs> pays him with a sack of quarters. Um, and of course, like I love, I, you know, it builds up to the, that lovely line, uh, flashing lights, loud noises, monsters. I got enough of this in real life. And <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think anything else that came to mind, we've talked about. Yeah. So those are just a couple of beats that we haven't sure. discussed. So. so if someone were to be a fan of Taxi uh, and wanted to watch something else that's somehow related to it, what would you recommend? Uh, Cheers has to be the first thing. Yeah. Um, in addition to the, the, the guest appearances that we mentioned, um, producers and writers and directors who worked on Taxi went on to create Cheers. Um Les and Glenn Charles, uh, James Burroughs, who is um, kind of just a, a monster of sitcom direction. Um, he directed almost every episode of Taxi, which and, is crazy. And direct he had, and he's directed every episode to date and going forward of Will and Grace. I mean, he's still he working. directed every episode of Chairs too, I believe. Maybe a few, most most, most of them, of if them, not yeah. all of them, which is over two hundred episodes. That's just he's a workhorse. Yeah, but it, really thoughtful with his direction. Sure. Yeah. And yeah, again, I mean, Cheers is just simple premise, 
amazing characters who come to care about really quickly, not afraid to shy away from their darker tendencies or for, for it's the same like makeshift family Mm -hmm. thing that taxi does. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it about people that are maybe unhappy in life. Uh, and this little bit of, um, you know, this bar kind of gives them respite uh, from from the ugliness of their day to day lives. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And another one that I, I I wouldn't have thought of had I not rewatched it recently. But um, did you ever watch Party Down? Yeah, that was actually going to be my recommendation. Oh, really? Yeah. I uh, think it's it's a perfect kind of um, you know follow up to Taxi. If you enjoy Taxi, it's essentially a similar premise where. It's a catering instead of a taxi cab um, service. It's a catering service, and they're all they all have day jobs. They're all actors or writers, or they want to be, except uh, for that one guy. Except for that one guy, yeah. Uh, and there's only uh, two seasons mm-hmm. each, ten episodes. Uh, it's got a lot of people that you would recognize from a lot of popular stuff uh, now. Adam Scott, um, Lizzie Kaplan, that other guy. Oh, Ken Marino. <laughs> Ken Marino and uh, Martin Starr. Mm-hmm. Um, Megan Mullally is in the second Megan season. Megan Mullally is in the second season. And the first season is Jane Lynch. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so it's like so good. a bunch of people that post Party Down, you know, have uh, had a pretty successful career. So. Yeah. But like uh, much in the same way that Judd Hirsch's character has sort of abandoned whatever his dreams are, um, Party Down really centers around adam scott's character who yeah. who was an actor and sort of if you haven't seen it he became famous for this one um commercial like a, a beer commercial that he couldn't uh, no he couldn't get people to see him as anything but that guy yes yeah. he Did just you remember the catchphrase uh, are we having fun yet yeah are we having fun yet so he's he's quit yeah. He's given up on his dream and he's gone back to the mm-hmm. catering business he yeah. worked at before when he was a, a struggling actor. Yeah. A lot of overlap there. Yeah. Uh, and then I had one more recommendation, which you actually also um, had mentioned a little earlier. Okay. And and this is, you know, this is, a, this is a leap. But if you're a fan of Danny DeVito, I rewatched it recently. Just watch Batman Returns. Oh, I, I thought is... you were going to say throw Mama from the train. <laughs> no, uh... I've actually never seen Throw Mama from the Train, or at least I don't remember it. Yeah. Uh, but Batman Returns is absolutely bonkers. It's the weirdest superhero movie. I can't believe it exists. Um, something like this could not possibly be made now. There's too much money to be made. Uh, I don't know how he got away with this movie. It's just this weird thing of these three people that all want to fuck each other. and It's so st- it's so strange. Yeah, but watch it, it, and he's amazing in it. It's such a weird performance, and there are shades of Louis, but at the same time, I don't think he's ever done anything quite this manic and mm-hmm. big. Uh, and it's it's a great performance. Yeah, you know what? Else? I love him in Matilda, which he directed as well. I don't well. think I've seen that. Oh, it's it's so fun, and he's he's uh, again, it's another shade of mean, but yeah, he's uh, and Rhea Perlman is in it playing his yeah. wife. Cool. So so uh, what are we talking about next time? Next time, we are going to be talking about the wonderful Wizard of Oz. Oh, sounds magical. It is magical. That's great. Uh, Are you going to wear your ruby red slippers? uh, No, I'm going to be wearing my silver slippers because there's silver in the book. Yep. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about the book by uh, L. Frank Baum, which... Mm -hmm. um, I hear he's the bomb. 
Shut up. I'm so sorry. Oh, my God. Okay, that's it. Good night. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this week's What Did We Miss? If you want to know more about this week's episode, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at What Did We Miss? For links to some of the clips, videos, and research we may have mentioned throughout the episode, plus previews for upcoming shows. Drop us a line and let us know what you think, especially if we're talking about one of your pop culture blind spots.